Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Well, Tiffany, <laughs> this question is silly for me because I know you so well, but let's start with a bit about, about your background. How did you first get into the type of work you're doing today? I like to say that I'm doing what most people on the planet are doing, and that is exactly what my parents do. In my case, it's my mother. So my mother is a career diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, she you know, came up post-civil rights, and uh, she was kind of a pioneer in the space. So I grew up in different environments and stand-up offices of multicultural affairs, but that lens of diversity was something that I was just kind of steeped in, not only as a, as a minority, but as a child of a mompreneur. Awesome. And your latest book, Over, uh, <laughs> Overcoming Racing Institutional Bias, of which we're I'm doing a lot of things with bias over here. I understand the confusion. <laughs> so, can you just give folks, um, you know, a bit of an overview about the book and maybe some of the background that led you to write it? Yeah. So, essentially, it, it is kind of a follow up to the first book. Uh, Overcoming Bias was really a, a an individual. Uh, independent study on bias, unconscious bias. How do you find your own? What is it? How do you deal with it? And erasing institutional bias is basically predicated on the notion that if people are biased, so are the systems that we build. And I like to write books from the perspective of the individual and empowering the individual to make a difference no matter how big the challenge is that, that we're facing. So in the case of institutional bias, whether it's within our organization or within our, our neighborhoods, our households, community, or society, Sometimes we will see bias operating at a large scale and be intimidated and kind of reticent to do anything about it because we feel so helpless as an individual. And what we've done in in Erasing Institutional Bias is outline some steps and processes and ways of thinking and approaching uh, breaking down the challenge of institutional bias and actually doing something about it. And I love the way you organize the book as a fellow author, I was like, this is a great organization. Chapter one, understand the problem. (laughs) Um, Can you, I mean, so for folks who don't maybe know what institutional bias is, could you just describe like, what is the problem of institutional bias for folks who don't know? Yeah. So institutional bias is, so it's bias that is operating at a large scale. So for instance, if you, if you look at your organization and you, let's say you actually have diversity at your organization. You have lots of of ethnic and gender representation, um, sexual orientation representation, lots of different people. If you find that all of your diversity or the vast majority of it is concentrated at the lowest levels of your organization, and the higher you up, up you go in the organization, the more homogeneous it becomes, regardless of what that looks like. If you have nothing but black women at the top of your organization, you might have a, you know, gender and, and ethnicity bias favoring um, you know, people of color and women. If you have nothing but white men at the highest levels of your organization, that you might have some bias, biases that are operating that are preventing certain people from being able to equitably achieve success and leadership status within your organization. And the, uh, the, the sort of, the next part of this is start with you. And I love that because I think most people think institutional bias is something that's out there. 
can you just can you just give folks like what should people be aware of or what should they start to look at when thinking about institutional bias in themselves? Yeah, so the reason you have to start with yourself is because when you're when you're calling out a bias at an institutional level, it's still what you know is originally based on interpersonal bias somewhere. And when you call it out in a system, the people who are responsible for taking care of that system, building and defining and refining and growing that system over time are likely to become defensive because there is an implication of intent. If you say, oh, hey, by the way, you have a gender bias problem in your system, people, people take it in a defensive manner. So if you um, are, are going to achieve success and get buy-in after identifying the problem, you've got to be able to understand your position in, in relation to that bias. And so if there, you know, if there's a gender bias, for instance, you want to be able to speak about gender bias and what it is in, a, in an informed and articulate manner. And you need to be able to clearly understand how you might be contributing to that bias or benefiting from it. Because, you know, if you know that there is a, um, if you know that there is a, uh, a gender bias problem, it doesn't really matter whether you are the person who is, if you are the, the demographic that is on the receiving end uh, of the bias or benefiting from the bias, you need to know what, that's, what that stance is uh, and so that you can really speak to the problem in an informed manner. And in many cases, if you think about being an ally, for instance, if you are not adversely affected by the bias, then you arguably have an even stronger voice when you're willing to stand up and say, hey, I recognize that we've got a gender bias problem here. Um, and while, you know, it's not affecting me adversely, I may be benefiting from it, but I'd like to see this, uh, show up in a more equitable way for everyone. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to that? Cause I think, um, you know, I imagine many listeners have questions about like whether they, you know, whether they should step up if they is like, say, if I'm a man and there's a gender bias or if I'm a white person and I see, you know, something, um, you know, racist, uh, you know, we often feel like, well, I want to wait for, like, I want to be an ally. So I'm going to like wait for the person of color to speak up, <laughs> you know, it's like, or I'm going to wait for the, the woman to speak up. Can you speak a little bit to those people who like want to be allies, but don't really know what to do about certain things? So that's sure. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the steps in the process is to identify it like-minded people, identify it, you know, no matter what the challenge is, there's always a group of people somewhere who care about it and who are probably already working on it. So when you've done your own work and you are prepared to acknowledge your role in either perpetuating the bias or, um, you know, how you plan on improving it, con you know, connecting with people who are also, you know, are, who are also concerned about the bias is exactly what you need to do. So you'll find yourself that way amongst other allies and amongst, you know, the marginalized people who are being adversely affected by the bias. So you want to build kind of a coalition. Um, and, and particularly in the context of this, this institutional stuff, it's important because if you are one person and you stand up and you point out a bias, it's so easy to disappear you. It's easy to sideline your voice and quiet you down. But if you've got a group of people both representing the, you know, the the marginalized groups that we're talking about and allies who, you know, technically could be benefiting from uh, that bias. When you get all of those voices together, it's much more difficult for the powers that be or the establishment or leadership to ignore what you have to say. I'm thinking of the recent Google protests with like a thousand women walking out and protesting. Did you see the, the news on that? 
I did not actually. Okay. Yeah, there was, um, I guess the background is several male senior execs have been given gigantic payouts after being accused of sexually harassing women oh, wow. um, and who have left the company. And so, uh, and it's happened. I mean, it's, it's systemic. It's an, it's an institutional thing in tech and then Google is no different. I mean, okay, it's institutionally in the world and Google is no different. Um, and so a thousand women from all over Google's offices around the world walked out, I think it was earlier this week or last week, uh, mm-hmm. and just basically said, hey, like this is like, and so it was interesting because it was the employees doing a protest as opposed mm-hmm. to like, you know, people outside Google protesting. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because like I do diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy work for a living. And, you know, we j- basically, we, we don't really take on clients who aren't interested in addressing this at the systemic level. And, you know, years in, in the years past, it, our work has been, in, you know, instigated by or requested by leadership. People have, leaders have either been proactive and visionary and said, hey, we want to invest in, you know, building equitable and inclusive, you know, systems and structures and workplaces for our, for our employees. And more in recent years, our work has been, you know, brought on as a result of employees reaching out and saying to leadership, hey, this organization has some bias, we're concerned. Oh, and by the way, we know a company that can help with that. And they're called TMI Consulting, or they just say, you know, you need to do something about this solve the problem, find somebody, and the leadership finds us through research. So it used to be top down, and now more and more I'm seeing this kind of grassroots demand for uh, equity in the workplace. You know, you listening to you speak, um, I know me and you have a separate conversation on this book, Winners Take All, but it might be interesting to just like briefly chat about this. So for listeners who don't know, um, I think Tiffany, you're the one who turned me on to the book. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's basically sort of the, the thesis of, you know, for folks who don't know, it's the thesis of, you know, a lot of companies that think they're doing good or doing well, of which the author names B Corps and social enterprises and philanthropy are actually just perpetuating systemic, uh, you know, white supremacy and, um, you know, st- systemic oppression because they're not actually addressing the problems or, or it's presumes that the winners, like the richest people get to decide, even if they're quote unquote progressive, get to decide like how the world works. And I, I'm curious for your, what's come up for you after reading that book and like, um, as it relates to the, to the DEI work you do on a daily basis, have you noticed any sort of connections in that, in, the, in that space? Absolutely. So, I mean, it was, I was deeply challenged by it because I have absolutely been imbibing the B Corp Kool-Aid. I think it's delicious. I love it. Um, You know, very proud to be the first uh, diversity firm in the world to get a B Corp certification, Um, you know, have worked with B Lab and, and I, and I do love what we stand for. I thought it was incredibly challenging and thought provoking. Um, because it, you know, the, the thesis makes sense. You know, how can you stand on the backs of people and offer a little bit of charity, you know, as opposed to really offering justice? How can we use the very systems that, you know, broke <laughs> as many of the things that are going on in society in order to, to repair them? It's, it's, it's some pretty sound stuff going on. 
And for me, the challenge has been, you know, how do I move forward? How do I move forward in a good way? How do I move forward in a way that is authentic? And the only, you know, this for me, I think it's, it's probably a little bit easier for me to uh, process and internalize this stuff because I do stand at the intersection of so many marginalized identities. So while many of the things that he's saying about these do-gooder businesses in the B Corp sector are true, I'm still a quadruple minority. And, you know, my standing in the world and, you know, making, you know, making a path, making a way forward and being economically empowered is one form of social justice. It is, you know, flies in the face of white supremacy. So there are, you know, there are things that are very real about what I'm able to accomplish and how I'm able to do them that are parts of the solution. And I would like to proliferate that, but it's very easy for me to lean into the privilege because I have an inordinate amount of privilege just by virtue of, you know, where I sit, what I do. And now I have some choices as, you know, as I become increasingly more economically empowered and have more exposure and get labeled a thought leader. I book. Yeah, it, it's funny that you mentioned TED Talks. You're like, damn, I did a TED Talk once. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's so easy. It's like, you know, when you know it's it's tempting to, you know, accept the the status and you know accept the, the various checks for the things as they come. And so me, you know, I have to I have to think about what does being a responsible steward mean? And how am I creating opportunity? And it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not willing to buy into the thesis wholesale, but, you know, just like when I came across the B Impact Assessment, it changed the way I grew my company. I grew it in a very different way deliberately as a result of the ways that my eyes were opened. And I feel like you cannot read that book and be a sincere and thoughtful person and not be somewhat changed by it. So how I grow my companies from here and the way that I approach um, sort of change making will be different. You know, I'd love to maybe dip in a little bit to some of the biases you identified in the book um, that people may not know off top of their head. Like, for example, occupational bias. Could you just describe, you know, what that means or how what that means to you, and and what sort of biases people should be aware of when thinking about that? Yeah. So occupational bias is, you know, the biases that we have where we feel like certain people are more likely to fit certain job descriptions. So, you know, we were just talking about Google. People still, you know, when they think of coders and engineers, there's still a very strong male bias. Um, there's still a strong white bias there. Uh, we think about, I think one of the examples I give in the, in the book is, you know, you think about nurses people think about the women as nurses far more often than they consider the idea that men can be nurses and, you know, doctors are still uh, sort of lean heavily male. We have, we have gendered notions of who, who does what. And a lot of that is very problematic and it gets in the way of people being successful. Um, another bias that is, you know, what I believe is my, uh, the most significant contribution that uh, Ashley Diaz, Mejias, and myself are making to the body of knowledge is the, the final bias that's mentioned in the book, and that's retribution bias. And we've actually dedicated two chapters to it because it is so significant, and it is the human tendency to favor punishment over relationship, punishment over healing and, re and rehabilitation. And so the, you know, the big example that we use in the context of the book is the 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 
history of mass incarceration and the legacy thereof in the United States. And it all goes back to the you know, enslavement of Africans and the disproportionate impact that the criminal justice system has on African-Americans and African-American men in particular. So, you know, people, you know, there's a, you know, alleged crime. Sometimes people are guilty. Sometimes people are not. Uh, they're supposed to have the opportunity to serve their time and then re-enter society. And we've created all of these horrifying mechanisms. One, because of the retribution bias, a lot of us turn a blind eye to the, to the inhumane injustices that happen when people are behind bars. And then when people are released, there's a whole system that's designed to keep them living as third-class citizens. And it's awful. So we really expand on that idea and talk about some of the history of where this stuff comes from. And, you know, we've got the largest incarcerated population in the world and with a, you know, with a population of 12% African-Americans in the United States, that's, that is how many, that's the percentage of black people living in America is 12%, but we have a 33% incarceration rate for black people. It's just, it's, it's not okay. So uh, that's one of our sort of favorite contributions in this space. I, I I really appreciate that. There's there's an article or not article. There's a the recent um, season of Serial. The podcast is like looking at the Cleveland. Have you listened to all the Serial the podcast? Uh, no, I've been told about it, and I have not. I have not. So it's uh well, it's just this particular season is all about like retribution bias. I was just thinking of you mm-hmm. when listening to it. Like one of the character, one of the real people is not a character, and one of the real people you know, the police sort of give him um, tickets constantly about like having expired, like expired license or expired, um, you know, registration for his car. Like, so he has like 10 tickets. It's like the tickets just pile up. It's almost like, it's like, what's the point of the 11th ticket and the 12th? So there's just like, um, there's clearly some sort of retributional bias of like the system is like targeting certain people for, uh, you know, institutional reasons. Mm -hmm. So it just resonated with me. Yes. Um, the, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I've been interested in, we've talked about a little bit is like the, the sort of also the bias in gender dynamics around like the binary male, female, um, uh, and, and sort of, and also like sexuality, like sexual preference. And, and, and I think like these are maybe even ones where, um, uh, you know, especially like the, uh, like male, female, um, and, and like the sexual preference being like, people are still very uncomfortable with like, is it, are you a male? Uh, you know, so like, can you speak at all about like how that came up at all in the writing of this book or, or in your life? So in the writing of the book, uh, so gender bias, so gender bias and racial bias are two constructs that people are pretty familiar with. So we have been talking a lot about um, about, you know, the disparate treatment, disparate comp- compensation for men and women. Um, but the, the sort of research and expanding on, in the gender bias space, it was somewhere along the lines in that journey that I actually uh, sort of self-identified. I realized that I was actually gender non-conforming and didn't have the language for it. Uh, so, you know, it was, and as you know, <laughs> my pronouns changed while I was writing these books. And uh, so I identify as, as they and theirs. And, you know, it is, it's interesting because we have a, a much more broad and inclusive tolerance for 
the you know ambiguity or the nonconformity than we have in the past. But as a you know human species, we we tend to get really uncomfortable when we don't know precisely which nice little neat box to put people in. And as with like occupation bias, you know we have these preconceived notions of who is supposed to be what and what a certain, you know, what does a banker look like? What does a lawyer look like? What does an elementary school teacher look like? And with the, you know, in that, in that gendered conversation, um, you know, people just depending on where you, where you live, who you're surrounded by and how kind of open and inclusive your networks are, it can be incredibly jarring for people. Um, and it can be incredibly difficult for folks to wrap their heads around, you know, gender being on a spectrum as opposed to being a binary thing. So um, it's something that we sort of teach about in the context of, you know, of the work that we do when we do training. Um, most of us are, are, are comfortable with and familiar with the, the club with the large numbers, and that's, you know, the, the boys and the girls of the world. But, you know, we have both the biological construct and the social construct. In the biological construct, you know, people are XX, XY, and what people forget is that through no fault of their own, there is a critical mass of people who are born something in the middle. Um, and we know like the, uh, if you remember the South African track star who caught a whole bunch of heat because they said that um, she was, she was actually a male competing in a female competition. They forced her to do a blood test and tested for gender. And she was a combination of XX and Y. Um, and that is, that was a biological function. She's intersex. And we talk about LGBTQIA plus, right? The I is intersex. That's biological. On the gender side, you know, it is a social construct that is a self-identified expression, but we have a tendency to want to overlay our opinions and our beliefs and our levels of comfort onto people's biology, and it's really problematic. It's really problematic when we can't just let people be who they are. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of uh, just learning about white supremacy as a, like, you need people to be like, where did you go to college? What gender are you? What do you do for work? Um, like we, it, it's really uncomfortable uh, for people to, to have um, answers in the gray area. Exactly. It's like we sort of, and then I've noticed that the, the way I've heard people talking about what um, the subtleties around like race and gender and, and other aspects of, um, personality is people say like, well, you have to be so politically correct to talk about this, <laughs> yes. which basically is a form of what Robin D'Angelo would say, like white fragility, which is like, mm -hmm. I can't handle thinking about all these things. So I'm just mm -hmm. going to like start making fun of them and like, um, or, or like just dismiss them and not, and like not think about it. I mean, it's, it's cultural laziness, honestly, is what I, is how I see that at this point. You know, I, I certainly like, for instance, changing my pronouns, I recognize is a burden on the people who already know me, right? The people who have forever been calling me she, it's a, it's a heavy lift. It's a lot to ask. And I have it easier than, than most, like I, my, my transgendered brothers and sisters, you know, when they go from he to she or she to he, um, that's, you know, that, that's a big flip. And when people call them outside of their preferred gender identity, it's very offensive. Um, as of now, I'm not offended by being called she. For me, if people call me they and them, it's a sign of respect. For me, it's no different than my honorific. Not everyone calls me Dr. Jana, but when they do, I'm like, oh, mad respect. Like, you see me, that's dope. You want to give me that little bit of props. 
Um, the same thing with, with they and theirs. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be super pissed off if somebody calls me she. Um, and I don't even actually hear it at this point. Maybe later in my journey I will, but I don't even hear it. I definitely hear it when people use my preferred because my ears perk up and I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, but that's, you know, that's easier for me because I'm, I'm gender fluid, right? So I, I, there is a, a masculine, a feminine, and a neutral energy in the middle. So that's, you know, that's very different for me. But, you know, the club with the big numbers makes the rules, and that's the cisgendered people on either end of the, uh, <laughs> the extreme of the continuum. Uh, but the cultural laziness that, that refuses to uh, play ball and learn, you know, that, that it, age has definitely something, generation has something to do with it. It's harder for us to take on new constructs and absorb new information as we get older and become ingrained in our ways, young people aren't having trouble with this conversation because, you know, they've had less time on earth and they're, you know, these constructs they're being introduced to much earlier and they're able to wrap their heads around it. But, you know, those of us who are getting up there in years <laughs> have to recognize, you know, the impact of being rigid in these spaces. These are real human beings um, with, uh, you know, around whom and for whom we need to have some empathy. I'm also, I'm interested in your thoughts on with all the things happening in our world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's what we're calling it now. Yeah, all the we're things. calling it thing. All the things. <laughs> joke. Uh, do you feel like things are moving fast enough in the right direction or what's your general sense of like, the current state of, of the world? What's your felt sense of the world right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely alarming. Um, you know, as a multiple minority, you know, the, uh, some of the things that are emerging right now and, and really standing in the, in the spotlight are not terribly surprising because if you, if you have any marginalized identities whatsoever, the reality of the biases that are now getting so much attention, the systemic biases, um, and the interpersonal biases that people have that once upon a time political correctness made it un, un, not okay to express, those of us who, who have marginalized identities have always been aware that this stuff was real, that it was out there, and that it was causing harm. It was just a little bit more buried underground underneath the surface. So on the one hand, yes, it's alarming to see the hatred and the vitriol and the bias exposed at such a grand scale. On the other hand, as a change maker and an inclusion practitioner, and dare I say, thought leader, oh my gosh, <laughs> sorry, <Nice>. Anand, <laughs> um, I, I've actually been like, I, I'm always able to find the silver lining. And for me, the silver lining in this is there's a whole lot of people now who are awake and attuned to the conversation and are sobered about the actual problems that we're facing who weren't part of the fight before, who really honestly believed in their heart of hearts that we had made so much more progress on, on all of these issues regarding, you know, relating to marginalized populations. So black president equals post-racial society. You know, we've got, uh, you know, women who can have any they want. We've got women on Supreme Court. Like everything is fine. We've got gender parity. It's all good. You know, the, the you know LGBT folks they can get married. Like we've got equality. Well, yeah, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And because 
so much of this is rooted in the the legacy of the far-reaching and ever permeating legacy of white supremacy because it's rooted in that the fact that we now have so many white people including and and especially white men like yourself who are seeing the problem willing to look at the data look at the human impact and the toll that it's taken who are willing to stand up and say hey like maybe we should do something about this because of that i have hope because of that i believe that we can get much further much faster because we have more allies now that said if we don't do it fast enough we're staring down the barrel of some really scary stuff yeah i agree with that assessment <laughs> i was joking with another podcast guest that the benefit of trump is he's ripped the veil off of um post-racial any post-racial notions that a lot of white people had mm-hmm. um if one could call anything trump does benefit uh but um i'm also i uh, i'd love your thoughts on what about generally in either your work or some of the other projects you're up to what are you most excited about right now <laughs> I am most excited about my tech company right now. So in March of 2017, I uh, launched a tech company called Loom Technologies. Um, so we now have, so TMI Consulting is the 15-year-old company. So Loom Technologies and TMI are now under the TMI portfolio header. And what we've been able to do with Loom Technologies is really look at uh, using like machine learning and the just digital infrastructure to digitize about 75% of what we do analog. And what we do analog at TMI Consulting is that we, we really look at addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations at a systems level. Like we do provide, you know, we, do, we provide training and intervention and coaching and the things that you would expect from a diversity consulting firm. But we also help people structure, strategize, define their their cultures in a meaningful way, rebuild their structures in ways that are equitable, and measure them over time for continued accountability, transparency, and improvement. So this um, we have a flagship product that is in in beta at the moment, and we're uh, we'll be launching an official raise soon. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. But we are mapping, measuring, and improving organizational culture using the power of machine learning. So. That's really exciting for us. And what does the name Loom stand for? So it's Loom as in weaving, you know, you have a a weaving loom. So you take lots of different threads, colors, textures, and you take the the sort of disparate parts and you make a whole. Uh So, yeah. So uh, the flagship product is Loom, the culture map, because we are taking the individual stories, experiences, histories of people in the culture and thereby defining who we are as a group. Excellent. Mm-hmm. I think many listeners would be curious to know more when that fundraising opens up. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I've, all you need to do is follow me on social media. Yeah. <laughs> Tiffany Jana on everything and uh, and TMI Consulting will we'll, make sure that everything is posted out there. So all your social media were there. I love it. Um, what are, you know, besides uh, potentially fundraising for Loom, what are the other top two to three things that keep you up at night? Oh, the other top two to three things. Um, 
Well, that's, you know, that, that fundraising thing is a, it's a big deal. I mean, we have a viable market beta. So while you, while you're in beta, you're testing all the things. So that, that creates an inordinate amount of stress. Um, but no, I would say that, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I'm a mompreneur. So I've, I still have one child at home. I've got uh, two in college, but one who's at home and I'm, you know, watching pieces of the world unravel in ways that are terrifying if you're a parent. So there's certainly that. Um, but then as an entrepreneur, I'm, you know, once upon a time, I started this endeavor uh, because I was a mom. And when I first started on my mom journey, I was a stay at home mother. And then I had a, you know, I had a divorce and I was a, a single mom and hadn't finished my degree at the time. But I wanted to have the quality of life as, as a mother that that, you know, that I expected of myself and for my children. So I started my business so that I could have the flexibility to be the parent I wanted to be. Now I've got this middle schooler who swears that she's going off to a conservatory boarding school for high school. So, you know, potentially two to six more years of her at home, jury's still out. Um, so I'm thinking about my, you know, my entrepreneurial journey. And that's the combination of um, you know, where do I want to land as an entrepreneur? What does, you know, what does the future hold and how much impact can I have before, you know, the paramedics come and get my finished body? <laughs> yes. So I feel like it's a race against the clock and there's a whole lot of work to do. And I want to make sure that I'm using my time and talent uh, in ways that, you know, honor the God that I happen to worship. I'm, I'm a Christian woman. Um, and it's really important to me to use my time, energy and resources as well. I love it. And yeah, you're, uh, we were joking about the amount of book proposals you've put in the last, uh, <laughs> the last six months. What are we at? Like four, four new ones or something? Uh, yeah. So if we've got the erasing institutional bias, uh, was launched in October, end of October, uh, B Corp handbook second edition comes out in what April? Yeah, April 23rd. And, mm -hmm. and then, uh, yes, there was one book proposal was just accepted a couple days ago, and another one's got a champion. I've got at least, I don't know, there, there'll be a total of eight or nine books in the next, finished in the next few years. So, yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I just, I can't stop writing. Again, I've, I, feel an, I feel an inordinate amount of pressure to get stuff done in service of the world. So, uh, yeah. That's just the, the white supremacy inside of you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I must conquer the world. <laughs> well, I mean, the cool thing is that, you know, I'm going to do this raise and we'll create this amazing product that the likes of which does not exist in, uh, you know, I mean, we're like quantifying, measuring and improving bias in this tool. It's crazy. Um, but when, when that company is sold for many multiples, because a tech company is a separate company, there is a literary project that I am looking forward to that's going to cost me a ton to do because it's not just a book. It's this whole digital experience. But that's kind of my, you know, a fun little dessert that I can look forward to if I'm successful in making the other changes that I want to make in the world. So <laughs> planning for the planning, nice. Ryan, planning for the planning. Um, you know, with Loom and so I'm curious how, um, so like what's, what specifically is like an example of something that you would do sort of um, analog, uh, pre like previous to Loom that, that, mm -hmm. that it's being calculated now or that something is, yeah. What's like an example of something like that? 
Um, so now, so we've had, we've been, we've been in the metrics and assessment space for like five or six years. So we were, we've been measuring our impact and efficacy in diversity, equity, and inclusion work for a long time, longer than most people have been doing that. It's not, wasn't a thing, but we felt like it was important. And that's one of the wonderful things that I learned from B-Lab actually, you know, so I, I, we've been doing that. And once the, um, our clients sort of took our assessments, my, you know, team of, you know, analysts and diversity practitioners, behavioral psychologists, all the different brilliant minds that we have have access to would work together to create roadmaps um, that would allow the organization to figure out what to do with the data because oftentimes you take an assessment and you just you know you get pie charts and graphs and people are like well good luck with that have fun um, and especially in the space of diversity equity and inclusion there's not not a lot of of you know information out there for how people can quantifiably move forward towards improvement and sustainable efforts in this space and so we've been manually cranking out these pathways to get people from where they are to where they want to be and so that's one of the things that um, one of the exciting things that you know that we get to do with technology now is you know take what exists in the brilliant minds of all of these people and actually program computers to do that for us so we can teach the computers to do what we do they're going to get the same data and input that we've been getting all of these years and we'll be able to have the computer automate um, the release of the information that people need to drive that change forward and is there like a ideal sized company or this type of industry that would benefit most from this the loom program um, so we will not use this particular product on an organization less than a hundred people because we, an organization can disaggregate the experiences and disaggregate data by demographic, uh, by department, things like that. But they have to have an, an N of, you know, 25 to 30. We, we, we protect fiercely the, um, the identity and the data of the individual. So ideally it's 300 people and up is, is the perfect, is the sweet spot. 300 person organization and up, and we can get some really, really good uh, information about the experiences that people are having and the interpersonal competencies. We're measuring organizational culture, looking at 80 interpersonal competencies across 11 different categories. Wow. And is it um, US, is it US-based companies or, or anywhere, or what, what's the sort of? It, it can be, it can be used anywhere, but it is, um, you know, but it is, U.S. centric in terms of like, for instance, we do look at, um, you know, we have at, we have an HR audit that we can do. And so we'd be looking at U.S. Uh, human resources law uh, and things that are sort of compliance based and recommendations based on that. So um, as we this is why we need the raise as we gain more access to resources and, uh, you know, are able to do more research because we have funded all of this research over the past many years ourselves. Um, just to get to the beta. Once we get into future iterations, we will be looking at much more highly contextualized things for international audiences. Yeah, because I remember writing uh, in the B Corp handbook, one of the questions that we were sort of discussing, or I, at least I had was, how does DEI play out outside of the US? Like, you know, someone <laughs> I've heard people maybe they thought they were serious, but it seems like a joke, like, oh, and we're, in, we're Canadian, like we don't have the same level of racism, which I think, uh, which is not true. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so <laughs> what would you say to, you know, listeners who are maybe like, well, that's just an American thing because they, you know, they have 
uh, history of, of enslaved Af uh, enslavement and you know it, but this exists everywhere right <laughs> yeah so that is the that is the challenge we we have an internationally bad rap for because of the um, the history of institutionalized enslavement of African bodies. So that is true. But we also have a reputation for, be, for having the most inclusive laws on earth. We are um, far and above most countries when it comes to the ways that our laws are written. Now, our ability to socially integrate that in meaningful ways and create relationships and communities, that that's leaves a lot to be desired. But no, um, I do this work um, not only across the United States, but across the world. And everywhere in the world has diversity challenges. It's just the flavors that are a little bit different. So if, if, you're, if your nation had an indigenous or has an indigenous population, tell me how they're doing. Let's talk about how you know, whether or not the indigenous population is, is still, um, you know, is dominating, is leading the nation, is, you know, has most of the nation's wealth, how have they been treated over time? And then um, there's, you know, there's always, there's the human tendency to, to just have to oppress somebody. Like there's always somebody at the bottom rungs of a society. I'm not sure what it is about our, our tribal nature that causes us to do that. But no matter where you go in the world, somebody is being marginalized, whether that's being done by socioeconomic class or whether that socioeconomic class is tied to, you know, race, ethnicity, tribal affiliation, national origin, whatever it is, it shows up no matter where you go. Yep. There it is, folks. You're not, <laughs> you've got it in your country, wherever you are. Um, and I if you can't that's... see it, then you've got some degree of privilege where you're able to exist without looking at it. But yeah. there are people who are poor and or marginalized in many different ways. They don't have access to leadership. They don't have access to wealth. They are other, otherized and, you know, made, made to be seen as or treated uh, in ways that are less than ideal. It's everywhere. It's human yeah. nature. Mm-hmm. How do you um, how do you deal with uh, people who don't believe in something like people who say, "Oh, white privilege doesn't exist"? Do you just say, "Like, well, we're pretty far apart," and I'll, you know, I'm not going to spend much time trying to convince you that it does exist? Or like, how do you how do you deal with those type of people? Yeah. So, I mean, my job is so much easier because you know, in the in the context, much of my work is done in the context of organizations. And because we spend more of our time at work than pretty much anywhere else, it becomes this fantastic learning lab for the improvement of human relationships and human understanding. So while organizations can't tell people what to believe or, or what to think, they certainly can mandate behavior. So I get an easy on-ramp where an organization says, you know, hey, we're not treating people differently because of their sexual orientation. Like, believe what you want to believe, but we're not making job assignments, um, you know, or hiring or firing decisions based on these criteria. And then when an organization gives my group or groups like mine permission to explain to people what these differences mean, you know, why they're important and why we treat people with respect, we can get people to see things by giving them, you know, access to good information over time. People who believe that there's no such thing as white privilege are, are operating with a, with a deficiency in information. They don't have enough information. They don't have proximity to diversity. People have given them bad information over time. It's the people who we love and trust and respect the most. It's our parents. It's our teachers. It's our clergy, right? We get really bad information. Our culture feeds us bad information. So 
that is the reason that I love to approach all of this with data first. I don't have to convince you. If you're a thoughtful, intelligent person and you are willing to look at the data, the data will convince you. I don't have to tell you, but you, you can look at the data. Um, and then when you, when you come across people who are just, you know, really not trying to hear it, I don't walk around the streets just randomly, you know, finding white people to tell them about their, <laughs> no, no. Cause I live in the capital of the Confederacy dude. Yeah. So you no, know, I've got, you know, I've got Confederate flag waivers, you know, within blocks of me at any given moment. And it's just not a good idea, but I do have a platform. Um, and I do, yeah, I mean, I get paid to help people understand this better. So I focus on the, the people, you know, who are either have a, a, an obligation to listen to me because they're, they're being paid to listen to me, um, or the ones who are trying to be allies and want to learn more and want to gain a greater understanding. Uh, and you'll, and you know, from, you know, from <laughs> working with me that I try to maintain an approach that is something that is, that is not hostile and aggressive. Um, I understand that you, people are where they are, and I firmly believe that by and large, most people are good people and really don't want to cause harm. And I try to appeal to that nature in people. Um, if I come across somebody who just really is, you know, hateful and awful, like I probably will just find myself somewhere else because that, that, that kind of energy, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't really do much with that. But most of us, I think, are good people. And I appeal to their, you know, better angels. It's almost like uh, my wife sent me some text earlier today, like, have you heard of calling in instead of calling out? <laughs> so it's like, oh, to read some new mm. thing. But it's like, uh, yeah. So I think that's, you're speaking to something I, I think that a lot of, I don't know, I hope is more common in the future, which is sort of like getting past the uh, initial like hashtag left versus right debate mm -hmm. and like who, mm -hmm. what is the shared values? Cause I think there's a lot there that we're sort of unwilling to engage with a person if they don't immediately agree with our political views. Yeah. That's um, so problematic. Like that is so problematic. We have to learn how to embrace each other. We have to learn how to have thoughtful, meaningful, intelligent discourse across the differences like we, that it makes absolutely no sense that we cannot connect with each other across political divides or other divides. I mean, how are we going to expand our minds? How are we going to grow? And how are we going to come together if, you know, we create these, these red and blue lines that are, that are harsh, that can't be crossed? It just, it's, it's polarizing and it's, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's divide and conquer. Like we will be conquered as a nation if we continue to allow these divisions to affect how we treat people, how we see people and how we bring people in. It's almost like we need more people to run for office, you know? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. Yes, it's true. It's true, Ryan. Can I finish my 47 books first, please? <laughs> <laughs> and we have an announcement. <laughs> um, I mean, well, even that's interesting because like, look, I mean, like, I, you know, if, if I had a, if I had a dollar for every person who, who wanted me to run for office, I wouldn't be doing a race, right? I would have all of that money, right? Um, but th even, even, even the way that our, our political structure is, um, our political system is structured is problematic. Like, I, w I would be willing to consider something like running for office, but there's, there's even within the blue lines and the red lines, there's so much politics that I'm afraid 
to even say something like that out loud because I know the people who are in these structures and there's a pecking order and people yeah. have to pay their dues and I, I will be pissing off a whole bunch of people with, which in, within whichever camp I decided I wanted to go for um, because I didn't follow the rules or wait my turn or, or, or take the proper channels. And I'm just like, that is so off-putting. Yeah. That's so off-putting. So kudos to all these people who, you know, ran in these midterms um, and, you know, broke barriers and defied logic and colored outside the lines and, you know, didn't give a care about, <laughs> about which order and what they had to do to get there first. They just got out there and did the thing. I'm like, y'all are brave and awesome. Y'all are my, my heroes and my sheroes. <laughs> Bart, Bart's wife, Chrissy Houlihan, Pennsylvania, Congressional District 6. Hey. Uh, B Corp, B Corp congressman, congresswoman. So cool, <laughs> so cool. Okay, well, in the last uh, minute or two here, um, what do you need right now besides going out and buying two books <laughs> first? <laughs> Wait, three books. Go buy Overcoming uh -huh. Bias for the past. Then you should definitely buy Erasing Institutional Bias. And you can pre-order the second edition of the B Corp Handbook coming out in April. But what else could people do, Dr. Jana, to um, help you build this next economy? To build this inclusive economy. Um, I mean, I would, I would invite people to pay attention to the subjects that give them a visceral response. So when you hear something on the news, when you see something, when you hear a story that affects you somehow deeply, I would invite you to, to heed that as your call to action from, you know, from the universe, from the collective intelligence. And find, you know, don't be afraid to lean into your privilege. We all have it. Find the privilege that you have and figure out how you can use it in service of whatever that issue was that made you stand up and take notice. Um, if each of us did our small part in, in, in addressing the challenges that we saw from the vantage point we have and the privilege that we have, no matter how small, you don't have to, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be a literal act of Congress. It, it can be a very, very small action. When you figure out where, how you can leverage your privilege in service of the solution, in service of community and humanity, if each of us takes up those small mantles, we will be looking at a very different nation and a very different world in a much shorter order. And then follow me on social media. Yay. Yeah. You, um, Re review those books you bought. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. What's the website and, um, you know, uh, yeah, Twitter, what are the Twitter handle and all that good stuff for folks? So, erasinginstitutionalbias.com is where you can find everything you ever wanted to know about the book. And that, that lives within the TMI consulting and TMI portfolio website. So you'll find my little universe there. I'm at Tiffany Jana on, uh, on Instagram. And then Tiffany Jana has an author page on Facebook, uh, Tiffany Jana on LinkedIn. The cool thing about being Tiffany Jana is that there isn't another one. So when you Google it and you go to it on social media, find a brown person with some shade of hair that is either dreadlocks or short blue hair at the moment. <laughs> yes. Tiffany, it's surprising there's not another Tiffany Jana because there, no, well, there is another Ryan Honeyman. It's kind of disappointing. So Jana was my middle name. I, it was my stage name. And after, you know, after successfully completing what now my third and final uh, marriage, right? 
Um, I, it was actually after the first one, when I found out how hard it is to change your name as a woman, I never took another man's name. And instead of going back to names of the past, um, because I was born one and adopted another, someone was going to be offended when I, when I changed my name back to my maiden names, I decided to just go with the name my mama gave me my first and my middle name. So that's my, that's brilliant. <laughs> and it worked out really well. Cause you know, there's only one me. Yay. <laughs> So yeah, so thanks again, and um, we'll we'll send folks towards your the, the portfolio of sites and have folks check out Loom and check out the book. So thanks for being fantastic. On. Thank you so much, Ryan. As always, so much fun to talk to you. That concludes this episode of Next Economy Now, and now on to our mini interview with Doug Bistry, CEO of Clearinghouse CDFI. Okay, welcome, Doug, to this interview series, the Next Economy Now podcast, and. You know, for listeners, I think one of the reasons I'm excited about Clearinghouse CDFI is that you're a lot different than other financial institutions. What about leadership? Is there any particular best piece of advice uh, around leadership that you've received over the years that you could pass on to the listeners? Well, you know, I thought about that and, and I've received, you know, uh, so much good information from, from so many wonderful people. Um, you know, including uh, some of my mentors and even in family members. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of things I'll, I'll, I'll share with you that uh, um, I've learned from folks. And, and, and one of them is just uh, to allow people to do their jobs. And, you know, we, we, want, we want people that, to feel empowered. Um, we are not a real uh, hierarchical company. Uh, we try to work more on consensus or a team approach to management, um, but we expect people to to do their jobs. And, and so, people who do well, employees at Clearinghouse CDFI that do well are self motivated and self direction have self direction. Um, you know, not having someone look over their shoulder or micromanage their work. So I think that's one of the best. Um, you know, very basic uh, principles of leadership that 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 I learned. Uh, from someone, and we try to practice. Um, you know, the other one, and, and this really was something I learned from my grandfather. He had two quotes that, uh, you know, uh, he helped me with what, you know, really are, uh, the first one is is really something I came up with. I said, really, our, our most important asset is our reputation. Um, but what my grandfather used to say is, uh, you know, your reputation is built on deeds, not words. And it's so frustrating, you know, when you hear about, you see commercials about a company that says they really care about you and, you know, they really value you as a customer. And then you, you try to call them and you're on hold for two hours to try to talk to a human being. Um, you know, we're, we, we try not to be that company. We try to have a live person answer the phone. Uh, we try to really protect our reputation. If, if I get a, a complaint uh, from a borrower that says that they're trying to reach one of my employees and that employee isn't calling them back, uh, that's a big deal. Um, and, and we're doing a lot. We're busy, but um, we always want to uh, respect people. And, and the last thing, again, these are just little kind of tidbits I've picked up over the years. But uh, you know, is uh, plan your work and work your plan. And uh, again, it sounds simple, Ryan, but it's kind of one of those little practices. You know, we we uh, you know, we get together, we figure out what we're going to do, and then and here's our plan, and then and then we go work it. And that's really. Uh, uh, some of the most uh, important pieces of leadership advice that I've either heard or or uh, acquired over the years. 
And where can folks learn more about Clearinghouse and, you know, say if there's any investors who are interested, what's the best way for them to get in contact? We have a great website that has a ton of information, including our financials. Um, it is www.ccdfi.com. Again, that's ccdfi.com. And uh, a lot of information there. There's contact numbers. Um, I'd be happy to, uh, to talk to anybody that uh, is serious about uh, investing or working with us. And also, you know, we're looking for projects to lend. Um, you know, good projects. And so, and, and our service area is uh, California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and all of Indian country throughout the United States. So if anyone is aware of an unmet credit need that has a good community impact, or, you know, uh, often our loans are made to entrepreneurs, uh, people of color or, or members of groups that have been disenfranchised. And uh, if anyone is aware of loans, boy, we'd love to hear from them as well. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.